Welcome to Autoimmune Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Justin Janoska, clinician and founder of the Autoimmune Revolution. After watching my mom suffer with autoimmune disease, I have made it my mission and purpose to help people like you. Unlock the door to better results, regain control of your body, and feel like yourself again. I want you to become an autoimmune alchemist and get your life back. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. May you be filled today with joy, abundance, loving kindness, peace and love. Through love, all pain will turn to medicine. Rumi. I wrote that quote on my Instagram story today. And it seems pertinent to today's discussion, but just expanding on that for a minute, we all go through pain, we all have suffering, whether we have a disease or not. And for you, it might be a lot of physical pain and emotional pain. For me, most of my life, it's been, not most of my life, but my experience has been more in the emotional realm of suffering, more so than physical pain. Either way, love is the answer, and the heart of the pain is the healing. In the suffering is the end of suffering. So that's what I want to mention before we get into today's discussion around personality disorders. And this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart because I witnessed and was with somebody who had what I believe to be a borderline personality disorder. And that was a lot of suffering for me. And love and compassion, all that stuff you hear about is really what got me through. It took a while, but it was uh, definitely the most salient point of that journey and that experience for me. And that's the medicine. That's the healing in medicine. And as simple as that sounds, that's what it comes down to for us as humans. But we forget of that. We lose sight of that because we're always searching for the next quick fix and the thing to get off of Amazon Prime and whatever shortcuts we can find. And it doesn't really work that way. You can do that to help the cause, but you got to go inside and really heal the wounds that are there. So I've been kind of putting off this topic for a while, uh, not because I'm afraid or anxious. Maybe initially I had that thought, but enough time has passed where I can reflect on it and I'm completely fine. I let go, I moved on. And that's how you know you've healed, I guess you could say, from something. Truthfully, it's a somatic felt sense. But we're going to talk about personality disorders and specifically borderline personality disorder. And next week, we're going to get into narcissistic personality disorder. And that's something that you might relate to more deeply than this one. But this is important for me to discuss because it's one of these things that really threw me for a loop when I had encountered somebody with these features. And I'll get into that in a second. And you might come across this in the future. You just want to be aware of this stuff in case you come across somebody and they exhibit these traits. And you're like, oh, I see that. I see that. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. A lot of people don't get diagnosed with certain conditions. Uh, so we don't know if we have it. We don't know if they have it. And it doesn't mean you have to get a diagnosis, like I've said before, to take action to do anything because it may never happen. 
And there's a whole thing with the diagnostic criteria in DSM-5 for mental illnesses. You know, if you don't check every single box to meet that criteria, you're not going to get a label, but who cares, right? At the end of the day, for me, what I've learned is that these psychiatric illnesses, these diagnoses really all stem from the same thing, trauma. They really do. Um, I could be wrong. We could see rare occasions where it's not that, but it's ultimately trauma in some shape or form, something from the past in our life. And maybe it was transgenerational and that's a factor too, but especially with personality disorders, that is something that has been uh, studied and assessed and shown in the research. So let me tell you briefly about my experience. I'm not going to disclose all the details, but really I was in a relationship not, well, some time ago, we'll say, um, within the past year. Well, it's been almost a little over a year at this point. And this is tricky because with people who have these sort of disorders, like even narcissism, it's not easy to pick up right away. They don't show the true colors right away. And they're kind of like this sort of like stealth they kind of fly under the radar and it, it took me about, you know, five or six months to really pick up on some cues. And I honestly had not really been paying attention to this condition. I had been studying trauma for a number of years now and I'm in school again, obviously doing my doctorate in this. And, you know, it's just one of those conditions I never worked with even clinically with people. Um, I wouldn't even bother to because they're so difficult <laughs> and same with narcissists. It's not easy. Uh, according to my colleagues who are therapists and have attempted to work with them. So in short, really, I was in a predicament because I didn't know this right away. I didn't know how to handle it. And I kind of ignored it. And it really caught up to me and bit me in the butt. So there was one particular experience that happened that I'll, that I'll tell you about. And I actually wrote a whole article about about this, a whole 10 page sort of essay, if you will, around my experience with this and just kind of um, for my own cathartic reasons and to get it out and to look at it from a new pair of eyes without judgment. It's not about blaming or shaming or criticizing the person or anything like that. It's, it's literally getting the emotions and the, and the feelings that have around it out of the way and looking at it objectively. Um, of course, share my feelings around it, but not doing from a place of this person sucks, they ruined my life and that sort of thing. Um, and I want to read to you a section of it just to give you an idea, a flavor of what this looked like for me. After nearly a decade of heart-dropping and traumatic relationships, I had I thought I had seen it all until I went through the most eye-opening and enlightening yet most chaotic and devastating one of them all. It was 1 a.m., just about six months into the relationship when I woke up with sheer horror dripping down my face. Justin, I'm not okay. I want to kill myself, she screeched from the other room as if it was a life or death situation. All I heard was a loud sound and thought someone was in the house or she was having a health issue. I sprinted out of bed and clashed with her as she stormed out into the backyard. She bawled her eyes out, expressing how she felt so unworthy that evening. And all I thought was, 
this can never happen again. And then I told her just that. That was the first caution from the universe I received, but I was quickly just trying to move on. So that is what I wrote. And, and to be fair, there were other clues and signs that uh, occurred before that, but it was not so apparent. So you might be wondering, okay, well, it's just one episode, Justin. That's one incident. And she threatened killing herself. What is that about? Um, is that really a big deal? Is it just exaggerated? Whatever. I mean, yeah, we could think that for sure. We all say things like this, uh, maybe, and it's not really taken seriously, literally. But let me describe to you what borderline personality disorder is if you don't know what it is. So kind of like other mental health illnesses, BPD is a condition where someone has a very difficult time regulating their emotions, their behaviors, and it's just very unstable in a lot of ways. So the other bigger, the other specific signs are poor self-concept. So uh, their belief about themselves is very low, low self-esteem, essentially unworthiness and adequacy. It's a, a theme that shows up a lot. And like I said, dysregulations in mood, and emotions, so mood swings. There's sort of this like seesawing between explosive behavior and emotions and depression. And that can kind of look like bipolar, but that was definitely something I had witnessed. And not just like an anger episode, but like really explosive and kind of like a whole, a whole new level of, of, of frustration and rage, right? So emotional volatility, in other words inappropriate anger, like I said, impulse, uh, impulsive behavior, uh, suicidal threats, self-injury, and generally people with BPD are very distrusting, they're needy, they're clingy, they're afraid of abandonment, that's a big theme, and they have a history of unstable relationships, trauma bonds are a thing that happen a lot, uh, connecting with people who are also traumatic and are bonding over their own suffering, it's unconscious and generally just engage in risky self-sabotage behavior. And they just avoid a lot of pain through coping mechanisms, right? So a lot of stuff can be applied to other psychiatric illnesses, but to me, it is the emotional volatility on an extreme level, the fear of abandonment and the threat of suicide, self-injury sort of realm. Okay. If that makes sense. They'll, they will often say things like, my emotions change very rapidly. I'm constantly afraid that people I care about will abandon me or leave. Uh, when I feel insecure in a relationship, I tend to lash out or make impulsive gestures. I would, they, will, they will describe their relationships, the romantic relationships, as intense but unstable. And that's why they often can't sustain them. They're kind of uh, all over the place, like a roller coaster, right? Good days, bad days, good days, bad days, um, but more frequently than maybe the average person might. And like I said, they will often experience extreme emotions, sadness, anxiety, and then joy and bliss uh, like one minute later, right? So I, I almost think of it as like Jacqueline and Hyde, like these two very extreme types of characters. So where does this come from? And this is what I want to get into. 
you don't wake up one day and have these sort of mental health challenges. This is built up over the years and it's rooted really ultimately in childhood. And that could not apply to everyone. Maybe someone develops a mental health illness like this later in adolescence or maybe early adulthood. But a lot of the research has shown that it's rooted in early childhood experiences and attachment failure is one of the things that seems to thread through this. I've talked about attachment theory in a previous episode. It might be episode, uh, let me think for a minute. What is it? (laughs) It is episode number, uh, 24, I believe childhood attachment and trauma. Why you must know this. February 6th. Yeah, so check that out if you haven't. That will definitely explain a lot of the things them saying here. But attachment failure is oftentimes just, again, a theme, a common denominator in trauma. And what we have seen in the research is that attachment rupture is the core of issues in developmental trauma, which is related to the parent-child relationship. And specifically, neglect and abuse in early child development leaves an imprint on the brain and it can't really organize itself. And that is essentially what the issue is with a lot of people who go through developmental trauma and it just comes out in different colors, different colors for different people. And that's, I think the tricky thing for us to understand as a society is that it could look like ADHD. It could look like, look like ODD. It could look like BPD. It could look like, uh, um, what else? Narcissism later in life. It could look like uh, anxiety, paranoia, depression. That is essentially what we're trying to say here is that that it's a brain problem before it's a mental health problem. And so when the brain of a child is developing in, in the early years of life and there's stress on the system like this from poor attachment, from neglect, from things that don't even seem abuse or traumatic, according to a lot of people these days, but really is, that is what changes the neurochemistry in the nervous system and creates changes in the anatomy in the brain. So it's tough because we don't see it right away and it shows up later, usually. So again, BPD is a description of severe emotional dysregulation. And I heard someone once say to me as it's like for BPD, it's like the, the mother who withdraws and the baby keeps trying to find that connection and is just denied over and over and over again. So rather than experiencing other people like their parents as a place of safety, traumatized people with BPD oftentimes can exhibit these strong urges and desires for connection and, and, and uh, relationship, but also simultaneously fear a relationship because they know they're going to get the rug pulled out from under them. And that's the sort of cognitive dissonance that that people can have, anyone can have. Um, that, that's what's so really, that's what's so tricky about this. We can see this in fearful avoidant or disorganized attachment styles 
again, I talked about that in the other episode I just mentioned. And that's basically when the parent or caregiver is abusive or showing neglect to a child. And the parent essentially is a source of safety and danger at the same time. So that is what's challenging for a child who goes through this. And here's what the research has shown. So this, there's a study that's titled Borderline Symptoms and Suicidality Slash Self-Injury in Late Adolescence. And the study was designed to look and assess whether disturbed parent-child interactions in infancy was predictive of borderline symptoms and suicidality or self-injury in late adolescence. And indeed, the results showed that maternal withdrawal in infancy predicts both borderline symptoms in general and suicidality and self-injury almost 20 years later. Okay, that's again why it's hard to pick up because it doesn't happen right away. It happens many years later. And the key thing here is maternal withdrawal. Like that's what they're looking at, but that doesn't mean it's only going to happen with a parent who is not present and connecting with the, with the infant. But the things to be aware of that we may have done as parents or had parents we can remember that did this to us is when they're withdrawn, they're distant, they're on the other side of the room, they're not acknowledging you in the room. Um, a lot of nonverbal communication, uh, and that can happen too. And that's why it looks subtle. It's subtle, um, but it's really communicating, conveying the message that you're not good enough not worthy of my attention and and to a child they see perceive that as i'm unlovable i'm desirable i'm not good enough i'm broken i'm defective i'm a failure whatever so it's it's yeah it's really disconcerting isn't it and really destabilizing for a child that's why we we talk about this so this lack of secure attachment to your mother your parent it's the mother because the mother is the one that's taking care of the child it's not the father in the, in the early years, the mother is responsible for all the connection and the nurturing, right? <clears throat> the paternal figure comes later. So the feeling of abandonment and neglect, that's stuff that predicts borderline symptoms. And we know that people, like in my experience, they have a difficult time maintaining relationships, not just romantic, but getting along with others. And this, this attachment issue with other people or lack thereof is a reflection of their lack of attachment with their parent. So it's not a trauma issue per se, right? The trauma is is stemming from the poor attachment. And not everyone who has poor attachment with a parent is going to is going to perceive it as tra- trauma, right? That's a it's a definitely uh something we should be clear about. It is very specific and individualistic and your nervous system and brain decides if it's traumatic or not and how you integrate that into your system. But Yes, for some folks, obviously, it becomes traumatic. So again, the research shows that early maternal withdrawal is the most important behavior in early interactions that predicts borderline features in suicidality. I think that's so profound because it's not just about borderline personality disorder, but maternal withdrawal is one of these things in developmental trauma that can predict self-injury and suicide. Because again, it really has that message of you're not good enough, you're unworthy, 
And that is, you know, again, we're not going to get into suicide today, but that's one of the things is they don't feel, they feel people like that feel dead inside. They don't feel alive. That is how detached they are from their body. And um, we don't, a lot of people don't understand this. I mean, this is all trauma related, essentially. And you talk to people who have suicidal, who, who have attempted suicide or have, have had suicidal ideation. I, I don't know anyone who I've ever met or worked with or, or not worked with, but um, heard about who didn't have trauma in their life. It's really just one of those things. So the absence again of early regulation from a parent is equates to high risk for adverse health outcomes and behaviors like this. So in essence, poor quality parenting is like maternal withdrawal is a form of maltreatment essentially. And that might sound really triggering for a parent. If you're a parent and you're like, well, you're saying I'm a bad parent, Justin, or and no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that whether we know it or not, most of us are not aware of it. We're not doing it consciously or intentionally to harm a child. Of course, we just don't realize that our parenting skills or, or quality of parenting is not, is not pristine. It is not uh, adequate. It is not um, enough or the appropriate style for a child and we're doing it unconsciously. And so they, it is considered a form of maltreatment if we're, constantly doing things that are not supporting a child, but it's been noted as the smoking gun for suicidality and borderline personality disorder. So that's what, again, the bulk of research has shown in this context, but there are other types of, of, of trauma that can also predict BPD, but I really wanted to focus on maternal withdrawal and the parent child relationship, because that is one of the more, um, I would say, subtle and and insidious types of trauma that develops over the years in a very slow, unnoticed way until it really builds up because for a child, they're accumulating a lot of this stuff over the years. And if a parent is, is withdrawn and distant and avoided and all that stuff, not emotionally there, and emotionally available that builds up for us on this in the system. And that's what I mean by uh, insidious. So finally, I'll just end with this, you know, as far as the anatomy goes, and this is again, where the changes happen in our behaviors from the, the change in the brain, but it points to the fact that maltreatment in this, this trauma I'm talking about, this developmental trauma is associated with alterations in brain structure and function and connectivity, even in people with no history of psychiatric symptomatology. So people don't need to have symptoms to have the brain change. And that's the thing to keep in mind. You don't need to have a diagnosis to have brain problems and alterations in neuroanatomy. But when you do scans, you can see this stuff in the studies that show this. So we know that stress already damages certain parts of the brain, depending on, again, depends on the type of abuse that's been studied and how that affects certain areas of the brain. But the, the, the bulk of the, the, the whole idea here is that stress and the trauma that one experiences over time, if it's complex trauma, it really can damage the brain um, in different ways. And especially when it comes to retrieval of explicit and autobiographical memories. So the hippocampus is a target for sure. That is your long-term memory bank. And we know across 
many studies that the hippocampus shrinks in volume. Generally, the amygdala is the, you know, the emotional fuse box that detects threats and danger. And that usually gets enlarged. Um, and by the way, mindfulness meditation supports both of those and increases hippocampal volume, uh, increases gray matter in the hippocampus and decreases gray matter in the amygdala. So that's why we meditate as a tool. But uh, yes, the hippocampal, hippocampal abnormalities have been observed in a whole host of neuropsychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia, major depression, bipolar, drug addiction, PTSD, and of course, bipolar. I'm sorry, borderline personality disorder. So um, yeah, that's what I wanted to mention here because people have a hard time remembering things and it's not because they chose always to block it out and ignore it. That is possible, but because they literally can't remember it. They can't retrieve information because the brain, the hippocampus has been damaged. People who have been maltreated have poor integration of both hemispheres of the brain, the right and the left. And that might be one of the reasons why with someone with BPD, they have a hard, they, they shift from being, you know, put together and logical and sound and normal, if you want to call it that, to being emotionally volatile and, and highly reactive and in a high emotional state. That might explain it. We don't know for sure, but that's one of the things that has been observed hypothesized rather. So it's tricky. And I lied. One more final thing I'll mention is that intimate partner violence is one final component here that I wanted to mention because not everyone experiences this, but it's definitely something I've seen every once in a while. And there is a connection between mental health illnesses like BPD, like narcissistic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder, because people uh, and, and and intimate partner violence. People who exhibit dark triad traits, so Machiavellianism, psychopathy, narciss narcissism. Those are the sort of the features of the dark triad. People who have that generally are diagnosed with BPD, MPD, or antisocial personality disorder. And research has also shown that there's a connection between these mental health illnesses and in intimate partner violence. Not surprising, right? So be aware of this because people uh, are in relationships. I've seen people I work with who are in marriages or have spouses are, who are flirting or look like they could be dealing with these mental health illnesses and it's something that may or may not lead to partner violence. But if you are experiencing violence, certainly get help as much as you can, as fast as you can. But realize that there's a reason behind it. And a lot of times it's due to trauma and you don't need a diagnosis to figure that out necessarily. But keep this in mind. There's a, there's a connection between all this stuff. And I want you to start thinking um, about all these sort of connections. All right. Um, finally, I'll close with one thing here that I wanted to mention earlier and I forgot, but I had a client uh, many years ago who, who, was, who was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and PTSD. She had a lot of trauma, which is explaining exactly what I'm saying in this, in this episode. She lost her grandmother at a really young age. 
experienced a lot of verbal abuse from her family, sexual assault in college. She was raped while she was sleeping. She had an abortion at, uh, at a young age as well. Experienced a lot of sexual harassment in public. And that's what I mean. It's like, it's one thing after another, after another, after another. And it's just very stressful to the system. And it's less about the experience or the context of exactly what happened, but the fact that it's stress and it's trauma to the organism, to you. So yeah, it's really tough. And I give you so much compassion and love if you're having a hard time with this personally and you're dealing with the mental health on this or you are with somebody who is dealing with this, a partner, a spouse, you're in a violent, chaotic, unsafe relationship. I work with many women who are still in unsafe environments and it's tough. There, It's a whole other discussion I won't get into, but I know it's not easy to pull out and just be like, I'm done, I'm going to quit and leave. You can't always do that. It's not that easy. So I give you a lot of compassion and strength and I wish that all of you be free from suffering and transform your pain into peace. I really do. So I hope this is helpful for you and it gave you something to think about. And if you need any help, please let me know, reach out. You know how to find me, hopefully, Justin at the autoimmunerevolution.com or even easier is to find me on Instagram at Justin Janoska. All right, thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm sending you lots of love and peace. Have a beautiful day and I will see you next week.